Hello and welcome to the Life Together podcast, where we share a meaningful conversation about living for Christ and loving one another. Thanks for joining today, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hey, everyone. I'm here today with Philip Russell. And I know you and Sarah have been with us here at Lost River for about, is it two years now? Officially, I think it's been two years, but we've been worshiping here for a little bit longer than that. Okay. Okay. So two and a half-ish, somewhere around there. Um, But for anyone who hasn't gotten to meet you and your family yet, um, let's just start with that. Tell us a little bit about you and your family and about what life is like for the Russells. Yeah, so I work in education. I work in school counseling at Bowling Green High School. I do college and career counseling, so I mainly work with seniors. Sarah is an RN. She's a nurse, and she works at the Kids Club, which actually a decent amount of people at Lost River work (laughs) at the Kids Club, and they serve high-acuity medical needs. So kids come to the Kids Club who can't get serviced well, especially in a public school setting. They can come to the Kids Club and receive the nursing care that they need. So it kind of doubles as a daycare. They don't they don't love it being called the daycare because it's more than a daycare, but it's essentially a medical daycare for the kids and the kids and their families, they're not paying anything out of pocket wow. for that. So it's a really cool, really cool job that Sarah has. And I love getting to brag about the work that she does. And we have a little bit over 10 month old daughter named Lydia, <laughs> and that has been, an absolute joy this past year to be excited about parenthood and then to transition into parenthood. And one of one of the greatest gifts for me last year was watching Sarah being a mom. Like it mm. was it was an incredible gift to see. She is so nurturing and kind. And I knew that from her in a nursing setting, but then to see it in our house every mm. day with our daughter was it blows me away. It's a daily thing where it blows me away how good and nurturing she is with Lydia. Wow. Well, that's that's amazing. We love having y'all with us. Um, you and Sarah have already made such an impact being at Lost River for these past couple years. And I am really thankful for you both. I really mean that. And a uh, fun fact for anybody who's listening, Lydia is actually the first <laughs> baby that I ever held. Um, growing up, I was, uh, for whatever reason, just like, you know, afraid, <laughs> like <laughs> they're going to cry on me or something. Anyway, well, Philip came and you just like, you just like put Lydia in my arms, you kind of just like forced me. So thank you for helping me overcome my yeah. fear. <laughs> I didn't know you were terrified of babies and we were at, I think we were at a cookout at your house and I just kind of plopped her, <laughs> plopped her there and your eyes got huge. That's Jared. hilarious. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I actually thought we had talked about it before and you like went out of your way to do that for me. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not usually that cruel. Maybe sometimes. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what that says about me, but um but really we've we've loved having y'all here and now all three of you it's it's just it's just awesome um but our uh, our conversation for today what we wanted to talk about is just kind of center everything around this phrase that i know means a lot to both of us and perhaps to a lot of people in this community in fact um but the phrase god is bigger god is bigger and for about the fast like six years or so, um, this phrase has meant a lot to me. So when I was um, 
when I was a freshman at Florida College, uh, I was worshiping at Henderson Boulevard there, and one Wednesday night, a guy got up to do the invitation, and he spoke about, he shared this story about a young man named Christian, um, who I won't go into the details yet, we'll save that for a moment, but um, it was an incredible and inspiring story of faith, and the statement that if I can remember right, sort of really held everyone together in this story was that phrase, God is bigger. And um, after the invitation, this guy offered for anyone who's interested, he said he would be in the back passing out wristbands that the family had either made or ordered that had that phrase on there, God is bigger. And so I picked one up and for about the next two years, I wore it everywhere I went. Um, like I can vividly remember instances where I would look down and be reminded of that statement and what it meant and the story behind it. And even though through the years, some of the details began to get fuzzy for me, having not experienced the story myself, the power of those words mm -hmm. still spoke to me and helped me throughout just different things. Well, anyway, a short time later, I moved up here to Bowling Green, and then you and I met for breakfast or brunch. Mm -hmm. And I remember as we were walking out, I noticed that you were wearing that same exact wristband. And so I asked you about it, and that's when I realized that this was a deeply personal story for both you and Sarah, because... Mm -hmm. Christian was, of course, your best friend. And so I'd love to hear you just kind of reshare that story for everyone and um, walk us through what that journey was like. Yeah, and the connection with Christian starts a generation before. So he said one time, he was like, we were destined to be best friends. And this gets absurd, but all of these are true. So it starts with our moms have the same name. Our dads were roommates at WKU, or they at least lived on the same floor in the same dorm. When, when we were kids, we both had mutts as dogs, and they were both named Spot. We were both baptized on the same day as our older brother. And we grew up, our favorite sport was basketball, both of us. Our older brothers were roommates at WKU. We were eventually roommates at WKU. We had first cousins who were the same age. They roomed together at WKU. And maybe the funniest one, we dated best friends twice. And then eventually we both fell for Tennessee girls. Um, and maybe the cherry on top to all of this, I can't, I don't know if I mentioned this one. We were born a day apart. So I was born on February 21st in 94. He was born on February 22nd in 94. And it was like over the course of our friendship, all of these all of these facts kept trickling out. And I think eventually we would go from saying like that kind of ethereal, we were destined to be best friends to God was knitting our souls together like a Jonathan and David relationship. So the story kind of picks up. It starts a little earlier than this, but we'll pick up with the finals week of 
the spring semester in 2015. The middle of that week, I think it was on a Wednesday, Christian was diagnosed with cancer. The cancer center here wasn't exactly sure what kind, but they were definitively able to say, you have cancer. The next week and a half to two weeks started clarifying it a little bit, and it was stage four esthesioneuroblastoma, which is the medical field's way of saying it was a tumor that originated in his olfactory and then had spread since it was stage four. So what that gave way to was a summer of intense and pretty brutal cancer treatment, high-dose chemo, high-dose radiation treatment. Fall and winter were similar. He was going through treatment, but then rebounded well enough that he actually came back to Bowling Green. So he was getting, his primary treatment was at the UK University of Kentucky Marquee Cancer Center, but he had improved enough that when he was on a break from treatment, he came back down to our place in Bowling Green, was living here, was holding down a part-time job, and was just here among his people. And throughout that time, what we kind of learned was Christian wasn't experiencing this on an island, but there were literally thousands of people who were keeping up with his journey through this, through an online journal. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was something like a Caring Bridge website where the family was posting and every post was getting these hundreds and thousands of views. That precipitated into the spring where there was a day when he said his head was really hurting, so he was encouraged to go back to Lexington. The cancer was spreading again. A few weeks later, the doctors determined that they had basically done everything that they could, and they said instead of chemo, radiation, additional additional treatments like that, they wanted to pivot him into palliative care, into a kind of extended hospice care. And then on May 26th in 2016 is when he passed away. And what Sarah gets wrapped in for a variety of reasons, because we were dating best friends at the time, her best friend was Christian's girlfriend until Christian passed. So all four of us were really close. But that day, May 26th, was two weeks and a day before our wedding. So kind of the story of our relationship is kind of interwoven with this story, which this is as much Sarah's story as it is, as it is my story as well. Yeah. Well, um, well, just hearing you reshare that, I hear so many themes Mm -hmm. of both sorrow and lament, but also Mm -hmm. of resilience and perhaps even joy. Yeah. And I want to, in a second, I I know you've told me about just some of the lessons that Mm -hmm. were learned throughout that journey, but I I think I actually would be interested in starting with you and Sarah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, grief is something that is a process, right? And sometimes we think about it in stages, but it's almost like it's, it's almost like it's more like a cycle Mm -hmm. where you'll experience this cycle and perhaps those cycles get smaller and smaller and smaller over time and the lows maybe not 
always quite as low. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess everybody processes it mm-hmm. differently. Um, but I, I'm just curious, what was it like for you and Sarah to experience that grieving process or perhaps even just that whole journey to together? Yeah, I get to start with the lighthearted take on this. We went on our honeymoon to the Smoky Mountains and in it's a little bitty town called Townsend, Tennessee. That's kind of your entrance to the park in one direction. That's where my family grew up going. That's where we like to hang out. And there's a coffee shop there that I really like. So on our honeymoon, we went to that coffee shop to read and Sarah was reading A Grief Observed. Oh. And so just like imagine, yeah. so imagine yeah. like someone walking up to us being like, hey, what are you guys up to? And Sarah has a book about grief and we're like, yeah, we're on our honeymoon. It's just being like, she's already, she's already thinking about grief and it's like mistakes were made. I'm already figuring out how to go through this, go through this grieving process. But what it, what I think that does show is that for, for the first six months, a year, that was a primary identifying marker of our marriage, processing that grief together. And I think the, the biggest thing that we learned walking through Christian's passing was that grief is wildly unpredictable. Mm-hmm. That there were there were days where we were fine yeah. and we were living life. I was basically a rookie teacher. She's a rookie nurse on night shift and we were trying to work hard. She had she was a CCU ICU nurse over at Greenview. So she was working hard with patients. I was teaching freshman English at the time. So we were we knew the work we were doing was really important. And then there would be days where one or the other, or sometimes both of us were just smacked with grief. Mm. And there was there was a day in particular where we were short with each other, kind of snippy. And, and I know that can sound like marriage. That's not, that has never been, and it isn't now how our marriage operates and how our relationship operates. So finally, after after a couple hours like that, Sarah looked at me and goes, have you been thinking a lot about Christian today? And I was like, yes, yes. Like that is what's going on right now. So the grief was unpredictable in the when it was going to show up or when it was going to really bring us down. But the other thing that we learned was grief is going to have an impact on us, that grief is forming, it's powerfully forming in our lives. And that process of walking through the stages of grief and those waves of grief shaped us individually, and then it really shaped our relationship as well. And it challenged our communicative abilities. It tested our patience with one another. And it it meant that we had to be on the same page because if we weren't, our marriage was going to start looking like that day mm. where it took us a while to realize what it what it was that we were experiencing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's beautiful, I get, and amazing to mm-hmm. to hear about how y'all were able to comfort one another through mm-hmm. that and 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 go through that process together. And um. You know, I, I, I'm curious also about just kind of 
looking back through this story, so, you know, the, we talked a little bit about the grieving process, mm-hmm. but maybe kind of backing up and, and, and talking a little bit about what were some of the lessons that you not only learned after it, but maybe that you, yeah. that were being formed mm-hmm. in you throughout that process. Of course, the biggest one being at some point, uh, the phrase God is bigger, yeah. you know, really spoke into that story, mm-hmm. but just tell us kind of how, how, what that experience was like. I think it, it happened early. So I was up in, I was up in Northwest Indiana where I'm from when Christian called and said it was, it was stage four and I went home and it was like ugly cry, like Mm -hmm. face down weeping. And I remember praying like, God save him, save him from this. And the, the message, the truth that just bore down on my soul in that moment was I already did. Mm. And that became a foundation for everything going forward. That idea of as much as we wanted healing, as much as we wanted a miracle, like there was a greater miracle that had already taken place, mm. his salvation and his transformation that had that had occurred. So then it, I'm going to say it just so happened. I don't think it was accidental. I was getting ready to do uh, a preaching program mm-hmm. over the summer. And prior to Christian being diagnosed, prior to having like any real inkling that something life-threatening was happening, I had determined my first Sunday at this preaching program, which was a week and a half after he was diagnosed, I was just going to preach the first 12 verses of First Peter, where in First Peter, if you can't just recall that to your, to your mind, God calls the Christians who are suffering, he calls them elect exiles. Yeah. Elect exiles, which can have a few different meanings, calling them the elect of God, the people of God. But it could also be that their exile, their suffering is elected. This is something that God knew, that God had appointed this for them, as difficult as that is. But then Peter immediately launches into this beautiful exploration of, our hope and he calls our hope this inheritance that that God has for us and he says the hope is living and the inheritance is imperishable undefiled unfading and he says our suffering when we go through it well and we experience that suffering like fire we obtain the outcome of your faith the salvation of our souls. So I was steeped in that and trying to figure out how to communicate that to this church that I was about to go work with for this summer. And that bedrock of God is bigger than their exile. God is bigger than the suffering that Christian is about to go through, that those who loved him were about to go through. That became like, okay, from this foundation, it felt like 
I could take a step forward mm -hmm. with that. Yeah. Because that that passage, and this is one of the this is one of the biggest lessons I think from this is that passage became so much more than ideological mm -hmm. that I think sometimes I fall into the habit of thinking about scripture and thinking about these truths just as ideas. And I love thinking about the ideas. <laughs> I love thinking about the literary themes and the structure and how all of that works. But scripture is pointing us to reality and inviting mm -hmm. us to experience reality. And so being able to live out those ideas from, from first Peter were that season of life now looking back on it is a really sweet moment for me because it's one of the one of the earliest experiences I have and definitely the strongest experience that I have of really living out and having like tangible experience of what we read and what we say we believe in yeah mm. yeah well that's that's amazing when there are moments where mm -hmm. the word of God comes alive, where it's like yeah. it leaps off the page and it becomes so real to us. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't want to speak into your experience, but it reminds me of perhaps it's even in A Grief Observed. I can't remember if that's when he says this or not, but that classic C.S. Lewis quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. Mm -hmm. And what what exactly does it look like when when God shouts to us in our pains? Well, at least in some part, and perhaps in the most powerful way, is through His Word. It's through passages like First Peter one that spoke into your story and gave you and Sarah and Christian hope. And mm -hmm. um. And I know, if I remember right, that that wasn't the only passage that affected you deeply. Yeah, one that became a rallying cry, partially because it's an awesome story and partially because it's an easy rallying cry, is from Daniel 3, the classic story of mm -hmm. the fiery furnace and Daniel's friends when they, when they are face to face with the king and the king is like, guys, like, bow down or I have to follow through. And you see a leader is caught in a bind. These guys who he seems to know, he seems hesitant to throw them in at least initially. And their idea to the king, God can save us. He's going to save us. Mm -hmm. Even if he doesn't, we're not. We're not going to back down. Yeah. And that, that idea, the way our friend group phrased it and kind of the mon mantra talking about a Christian and Judeo-Christian idea. It sounds weird, but kind of the mantra that we formulated was he can, he will, even if he doesn't. So we, we were walking through this and to varying degrees of varying times, but you walk through this and you go, God is sovereign and he can heal Christian. And you want to walk in faith that he will do that. That if this is what I'm asking, like we saw Christian's good and his spiritual trajectory was, was one that he was so good to other people. He was so good to the church that we were in at the time. 
we thought in our minds, the best thing for him to do is to be healed so that he can continue this, so he can continue his service to this church, to us as his, as his friends. So he can do it. He will do it. But then that third piece was essential. The first two, that's what we can control. We can, in some respects, we can control our understanding of God's sovereignty and placing our faith in him and humbling ourselves underneath his sovereignty. But it also took that next step of saying, I'm a limited human and I don't have this full picture in mind. So I'm going to follow up this prayer, not with a year will be done in a way that dismisses what we just asked, but in a way that says, if this doesn't go the way I want it to go, I'm going to come back to those first two that you're sovereign and you will do good for us, that somehow whatever it is that we're going to go through will work out for our good and for his glory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's such an important, like you said, um, aspect of working through suffering, Mm -hmm. um, the but if not. And the but if not, if I'm hearing you right, I don't want to misunderstand what you're saying, but but it sounds like what, what you're saying is the way that that gets worked out is is faith and trust and belief that God is weaving a a better and more beautiful picture mm-hmm. than what I am possibly able to imagine. Yeah. And the way that I've heard one uh, older mentor who I admire so much talk about his own grief and the loss of his wife at a very early age and then the loss of his boy when he was 16 years old was that it's this trust that God is sort of um, weaving this beautiful tapestry, this mosaic of sorts together and he makes sure that every thread fits perfectly, mm-hmm. even the ones that are the darkest to us. Yep. And it's so powerful to hear people experience that in a in a very real and practical way. Yeah. Where, like you're saying, it's not just it's not just ideas. This is not just philosophy. Mm-hmm. This is not just theology. This is real life stuff mm-hmm. but this is the stuff that gets you through yeah um so I, I i love hearing that and i'm so thankful that you're sharing that and um if i remember right there's i, I think was it second corinthians yeah. 4 that mm-hmm. also deeply resonated with you at one yeah. point yeah second corinthians 4 became my go-to so at Right after Christian passed away, I was doing a significant amount of preaching. It was multiple times a month at a church down in Tennessee and occasionally around the Bowling Green area to some of the shorter or smaller congregations as well. And I felt so compelled to talk about the experience that we had and not, hopefully not in a way that put 
undue focus on Christian or undue focus on Sarah and me, but we we were so compelled by what God had done in Christian mm-hmm. and by what God had done in seeing us through that I was like, I'm going to talk about this and I'm going <laughs> to ugly cry my way through sermons. And I was trying to find passages that could that could speak to what we had just experienced. And 2 Corinthians 4 and really into 2 Corinthians 5 became the perfect, the perfect place for us to kind of sit and really weave in what Paul was experiencing through his suffering along with what Christian had experienced and what we had experienced. Because I love where I love where that passage begins that the gospel and what God makes manifest is in the gospel is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, that Jesus' face, his countenance is radiating to his people and to the world, even though it's veiled for some, but to us, like we see the face of God. We see the countenance of God when we see Jesus in the gospel. And that's so beautiful and it's such a lovely idea but it's also what we had experienced as well like there was something sweet throughout christian suffering and kind of that what what it was was his faith in the gospel and it was the object of that faith it was the way that god was being faithful even throughout throughout this suffering but then what paul pivots into after talking about this beautiful image of the gospel is that he considered himself a jar or a vessel of clay. And it's like, I have this beautiful message. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where I have it is in this everyday appliance that just gets used. And it gets used and sometimes it gets abused and sometimes it gets dropped and there are cracks in it Mm. and it gets mended back together and it might look a little jacked up like some of our (laughs) kitchen appliances might at the house. But what's inside is this unspeakably beautiful treasure. And for Paul, what that meant was that list where he says, I am going through it, but I'm not completely beaten down. And the fact that he saw himself rightly as a vessel meant that when he went through those hard times or when that vessel was dropped and cracked, his focus could be the treasure is still there. Mm -hmm. And the treasure is still the light that's shining through. And the last text that I got from Christian, I'm assuming this passage was on his was on his mind, he texted me, we are vessels born to bring God glory and do his work. I'm honored to have been able to have done it for so long. Wow. So like, this is what was on his mind as his, as his vessel was cracking. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He goes to what's probably the most iconic for us, the most iconic part of that passage. But I think there are really three outcomes of seeing yourself rightly and seeing the gospel rightly. The first one is we don't lose heart. The outer self is wasting away, but the inward man is being renewed. 
But then when you get into chapter five, we don't lose heart and we're always of good courage. We're always of good courage. And then because we don't lose heart, because we're always of good courage, he says we make it our aim to please him, which means in the depths of despair and the challenges of these day-to-day lives, if we see ourselves in light of the beauty and glory of the gospel, there is a way to take definitive steps forward that please God in a cancer diagnosis and watching a cancer diagnosis and getting married and having a kid and being single, whatever the challenge might be, the step forward when we see the gospel as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus means that we can live and walk in a way that pleases God. And it becomes this beautiful bookend because I think on one hand, if you if you read We Are Jars of Clay, you might think that's a low view of humanity. But then when you read this outcome of you can please the creator God, you can please Christ as his light reflects the very glory of God, then you see what a gift it truly is to be that jar of clay and what a gift it is to hold that treasure and then hopefully to radiate that light ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just, just, just because I know you, you love anytime, uh, we can go back to Genesis, right? (laughs) Um, we taught that together Mm -hmm. in the high school class and had so much fun with that. But I mean, that's how it is from the beginning, Mm -hmm. right? We are the dust of the earth but breathed into us is the life of God. In every breath that we breathe in, we're breathing in his grace and breathing out his praise and his glory into Mm -hmm. the world. And then Paul picks up with that. We're we're these earthen jars of Mm -hmm. clay, but in us is the light of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. radiating from us and the most powerful manifestation of that is in suffering just Mm -hmm. like you're saying it's through the cracks it's through the chipped and brokenness that the light of god's glory shines through the most Mm -hmm. yeah and i think what else it does and this isn't a specific passage but suffering and watching someone suffering going through this intense grief brought us to the heart of the gospel because of some of the preaching that I had done and just kind of my inclination in reading and reading different people's takes on scripture, there there were times, especially in college and shortly out of college, where I might have given undue attention to kind of the periphery of our faith mm-hmm. or matters that might be of secondary or tertiary importance. But what suffering did and what it had to do, what we had to do in order to get through the suffering well was to truly anchor ourselves with the core message of the gospel. And at Christian didn't want a traditional funeral. He didn't want it at a funeral home. So we met over at the Nicely Center here in Bowling Green a couple months, I think, after he passed away for what was called the celebration of life. And the family asked if I would 
close by a short a short sermon kind of about about his life and what his life kind of led me to think about and it was first corinthians 15 mm. what is of first importance yeah. like that idea of what is of first importance is where paul says where we make our stand like we are standing in the message of christ dying in accordance with scriptures being buried and being raised on the third day yeah. and that that was forming for us because what what we started thinking what sarah and i started thinking is we want everything about our life then to be clearly defined by that as the message that we believe mm. and the secondary tertiary aspects of our faith, how we figure out how to handle secondary issues of our faith. We want all of that to be defined and shaped by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And I know this is a topic that you love. We wanted and grew in our desire to truly live out a cruciform mm. life mm. because we saw it with someone we love so much and we thought that's that's it. That's yeah. the way to live out the Christian life. Wow, that's that's so powerful. And there, just like you're saying in First Corinthians 15, the the gospel that speaks of the cruciform life of Jesus, suffering is what unites us with His cruciform life. Mm -hmm. But in First Corinthians 15, of course, it doesn't end there. The, the cruciform life leads to the resurrected mm -hmm. life and the transformed, glorious body. Um, and that's the the power of the gospel un, unto salvation. Yep. Yeah, and kind of looking back at it, big picture then, in thinking about the months and years that that followed Christian's death, we already mentioned that it is powerfully forming to go through to go through grief like that. And I think what what the temptation becomes. And what scripture is trying to push us away from is experiencing grief as if it's completely suffocating. Mm. One of one of the temptations that I think we faced, and I think all of us face when it comes to grief, is to stop and to not continue living in we don't live the same way after we go through a significant amount of grief but i think this is another lewis idea he talks about one of the cruel realities when his wife died of cancer was that you look out a window and the world's still spinning mm. and for us for christians we look around and there are needs for us to meet spiritual of course physical as well there are neighbors to love there are oppressed to try to set free grief can tempt us to stop all of that not just for a time of mourning but even beyond that and can have the effect of deadening us which is why i think paul tells us to grieve but not as those without hope yeah and that when, when we are so focused on the cruciform life, when the story of the gospel is 
what anchors us and it's the lens through which we see we see everything yes we go through the morning because god honors our morning but then eventually we take those first few courageous steps forward and start loving god and loving our neighbor just like we did before and i think that's incredibly difficult to do because it it can feel wrong when some semblance of normal returns. It can feel wrong to go back to work after a funeral. It can feel wrong to go to a dinner party and enjoy good food and good drink with good people who you love. But those are the steps that we take to get back to living in a way that is a jar of clay carrying that beautiful treasure. Yeah, wow. Well, I wanna wanna pivot here for just a second because i imagine that there may be people out there and perhaps people who are listening who are um, unbelievers or skeptics and i can imagine an unbeliever sincerely questioning not out of malice or anything Mm -hmm. like that but just sincerely questioning in the back of their minds hearing a story like this you know okay that's that's a really it's a really great story but what makes all this more than just a coping mechanism? Like what, what makes this more than just something that numbs us to the reality of life? That's, is that all that religion is good for? Is that all that Christianity is about? Um, so just, you know, for, for, from your perspective, what, what is it that provided so much meaning and weight and gravity to this faith that was being so brutally tested Mm -hmm. throughout that time. To state it, and then we'll kind of circle back and get to it in a few minutes. I think it's that we saw meaning outside of ourselves and the way we saw meaning was in what we believe is ultimate reality. Mm. So now I want to kind of pivot backwards and mm-hmm. take a few steps. So the idea is, is it is religion cheap therapy? Is kind of the question underneath mm-hmm. what you just what you just mentioned. And in in my counseling classes that I took, kind of therapy 101 from the from the therapist perspective, is you first have to know what the client values. Or in other words, how does the client make meaning? How do they see the world? And then how do they live out those values? And that's the challenge of grief, right? Mm -hmm. So there is overlap between what we just talked about and the therapeutic process. But that weight of being asked to identify what is meaningful what's valuable, what are the values that I should be living out in the midst of or shortly following moments of intense grief would have been, I think for myself and for Sarah, an unbearable weight. Hmm. Grief is challenging and it's unmooring. It can take us into different headspaces But what we had throughout is we had not just a set of ideas, 
not just a set of propositions that we were saying yes to or that we were trying to live out, but what we believe is that we were holding fast to reality, ultimate reality. I think the maybe the easiest way to do this is to go back to the first century when the Christians were suffering at the hands of the Romans, the truth that they held on to, the reality that they held on to was Jesus is Lord. And that's what they held on to to get them through this process. And we held on to the truths that we've already discussed, again, not just as this is the meaning that we have made in and of ourselves, but we see this as the meaning and we believe with all of our hearts that this is the ultimate meaning. So we didn't have to bear as much weight as someone who's walking into uh, therapy or walking into grief without that system of faith and without these truths that can that can anchor them. And again, one of one of the criticisms could be, well, you're just numbing yourself to reality with with your religion. And I don't think that's what we believe. I hope that's not what we believe. What we believe is that through our walk with God, through our walk with Christ, through our walk with the Spirit, through our walk with a person, we're awakening to a bigger, fuller, more accurate picture of reality. Because now, I should know this. How many years has it been since 2016? We're coming up on seven years, I think. Now coming up on seven years since then, we see a beautiful picture of what has transpired. We see that there is unquestionably good that came from this. And what we say and what we believe is that that's God at work. That's God working out salvation and working out his people's sanctification to his glory. So because that's it's external, it's not dependent on us to make that meaning, to identify mm-hmm. those values. I think that's where there is a massive contrast between um, calling religion merely therapeutic and actually experiencing it as ultimate reality. Yeah. Well, that's not an easy question for anyone to answer, mm-hmm. right? There's there's no there's no clear cut easy explanation in in to to think that probably means that we haven't actually gone through it ourselves, right? Um, but within that, what I hear you saying is that uh, I love I loved especially how you said that it's it's a belief in a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what gets you through. It's, it's the belief that that same person that your belief is fixed in lived 2,000 yep. years ago and entered, he, he, he entered into our suffering and bore it on his shoulders and identifies with us in the thorns and thistles mm-hmm. of this broken world and bears it on the cross and he was buried and everyone around him believed that he was raised. Mm-hmm. And somehow 
in a world where Christianity should never have gotten off the ground, where the idea of a crucified Messiah would have been, as Paul says, uh, foolishness uh, to the Greeks and maddening, blasphemous to Mm -hmm. the Jews. Somehow this message of a crucified, suffering Messiah changes the entire Mm -hmm. scope of human history and reaches us and transforms us even today. Mm -hmm. And that's the power, I think, of recognizing that this is not just, as as you put it, a kind of therapy, um, although it is in some ways that, right? Mm -hmm. It is deeply healing and and transformative, but it's I think that's the beauty of recognizing that our belief is fixed in in a person. Yeah, and all of all of this is kind of brought up in my mind that there there might be some listening who are either skeptical or Christians who may not be as familiar with scripture. And I think one of the most important things you can do when you're thinking about grief and suffering is embed yourself into scripture and see how frequently that topic is broached. Mm. Mm. The biblical writers did not back away from just the grimy messiness of the world. They posited that what's playing out is a story that will take us through that messiness, not, not avoiding it, not that deadening that we talked about, but will take us somehow through that messiness. And then on the other side of that mm. is when everything sad becomes untrue. And it's like, that's that's the idea. And that's what also became so compelling to me is that when I was going through grief, it can feel like nobody else has experienced this. It's like, sit down with the biblical writers, which we believe sit down with the spirit of God mm. and allow him to speak into that and to see how the Bible makes sense of what some might think is senseless and where where I've been so thankful and I'm continuously thankful through um, other moments of grief that Sarah and I have walked through is that what the Bible does in such a beautifully compelling way, it says, it says you are going to suffer and this world will provide all of us with suffering but for those who place their faith in Jesus of Nazareth all of it is meaningful Hmm. all of it is meaningful and all of it can shape us more into the image of Christ that more and more day by day as we put our trust in him and pray that his spirit would do a work in us to shape us through the trials and to shape us through the grief, we can be that picture of God's light shining here in this space right now. Wow, that's awesome. Wow. Um, well, um, I, I want to just kind of give you space to share anything else about Christian, about his life and his story, mm-hmm. and then also... What has the phrase, what what does the phrase God is bigger mean to you mm-hmm. each and every time you look down mm-hmm. at that wristband? The first one 
thinking about just memories of Christian, he was so kind and compassionate, which was convicting and helpful to me in a time where I was probably, I was probably a little jaded and I was definitely prideful and I'm, I'm not, not prideful anymore. I know it's something that God's working on pretty constantly in my life. And he was so good to other people, including in his final hours, like how kind he was to nurses less than 12 hours before he passed away. His girlfriend to me, Sarah Austin, our other roommate and best friend at the time. So there was something about his faith that kept him hopeful and kept him bearing the fruit of the Spirit as his final breath was drawing near. And looking back on it, that is stunning to me. And it's beautiful as well. And I think that's in part what God is bigger has come to mean, that it is transcendent. Our our God, of course, is transcendent. And what he's what he's calling his people to is to in a very real way transcend. I think it starts with our perspective of Mm -hmm. grief and then to transcend the world and the culture around us in the way that we live. I I'm so thankful for you and Lawrence and your constant charges to the church that we're called to be that non-anxious presence in the peace or shalom shattered world because we are called to model something different. And even within moments of grief, we're called to model something else, something better, something again, truer and more beautiful than what we might see in in the culture around us. And so it's that that spirit-empowered transcendence of the sinfulness of the age that I think God is bigger has has really come to mean. And then recognizing God is bigger in the sense that he is playing out the scope of redemptive history over a time frame of which I'm just a speck mm. and Christian was just a speck and is just a speck. And the same thing with all of us and to trust that that means the fact that he's playing it out and that we are small part means that there are going to be changes. There are going to be evolutions and I think what that does is it gives it gave me time to process the grief and learn from the grief. And I wanted to close my thoughts with two different quotes from um, some writers who I really appreciate. So after after Gandalf dies, spoiler alert for Lord of the Rings, <laughs> after Gandalf dies, the fellowship goes to like this elven utopia and there are songs going on honoring the life of gandalf and legolas who's part of the fellowship says 
the grief was too near, a matter for tears and not yet for song. And I loved that, that God is bigger. He's going to work it out over the course of his timeline. So even though you're a small speck on that timeline, within your time frame, as you're experiencing grief, going through that process of tears to song is a beautiful, necessary process. There was a time in my life, I got choked up talking today, but there was a time in my life that I couldn't have had this conversation and it was just too close. But something has shifted now that I see that story and what we experienced with Christian as more of something to sing than to cry over. But there are still some challenges with that. In another fantasy series, in Harry Potter, there's a, I think it's called The Mirror of Erised, that Harry gets to see. And in the story, you get to see what you most want. And he gets to see his parents. He doesn't have real memories of his parents, but he sees them and he has interactions with them. And it said he had a powerful kind of ache inside him, half joy and half terrible sadness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where grief eventually takes us. It takes us to a place where we can sing the goodness that has been wrought by our circumstance, yet at the same time, there will always be that tug of grief. And I don't think that tug of grief will go away until all things are made new. But I also think it's pointing us to that moment. Hmm. Um, I remember when we talked that day at brunch and I asked you about that wristband and you noticed that I was not wearing mine. <laughs> um, mine, uh, just because of, I guess, how much I wore it kind of became uh, a little little tough to uh, keep wearing out and about. You mm -hmm. know, those wristbands get that strange residue on it. Anyway, <laughs> well, immediately you were like insistent, hey, I'm going to bring you one. And you, and you did. And while it was a little bit big for my wrist and I was worried about it like sliding <laughs> off when I was wearing a long sleeve shirt or something, I, I put it in my office, which you can, you can see right now, of course. Um, and, and every day I'm reminded of it. I set my keys on, beside it every day and I'm reminded of that, of Christian's story. I'm reminded of your faith and Sarah's faith through that story. And I am reminded of the faith that we all share, the belief that we all share in the God who is bigger. Um, so again, Philip, thanks so much for uh, sharing this story today. I'm again so thankful for you and for your love and for your faith um, and I'm thankful to have you as a as a brother in Christ <laughs>